0: Hey there, quick heads up before we kick off today's episode. We're a small team effort so far, just the two of us and our editor making all of this happen. And now we're looking to take this show to the next level and could use your support to make it possible.
1: We want to make sure that these conversations stay uninterrupted. So instead of selling ads, we've set up a Patreon community where you can get some cool extras like exclusive content, behind-the-scenes access, and a chance to have your questions answered by some of our guests.
0: Your support matters a lot, so please check out the Patreon link in the show notes to this episode, or go to theother22hours.com and click on Patreon.
1: As always, thanks for listening, and here comes the episode. This is the Other Twenty Two Hours podcast,
0: where our goal is to provide musicians and other creatives with tools to create sustainability, so you can sustain your creativity.
1: Hey, and welcome to today's episode of the Other Twenty Two Hours podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Schaefer Hayes.
0: And I'm your other host, Michaela Ann. And since this show is in its infancy, I'm assuming you're a new listener. So thank you for checking us out.
1: This is called The Other 22 Hours Podcast because we like to focus on the time that we're not on stage. The other time in the day that's maybe outside of the public eye and ask our guests what they do to keep their inspiration and their creativity up.
0: Between the two of us, Aaron and I have almost 25 years of experience in the music business. I've spent the better part of the last decade putting out records, both on my own and with labels, touring the world and building an independent career.
1: And I started making records in high school with friends and then spent a lot of years on the road with different bands and playing gigs around whatever town I was living in as a sideman. And now I find that being in the studio and producing records and writing music for TV is what keeps me going. And so essentially... Through all this time, Michaela and I have really realized there's no one right way to build a career around your passion.
0: And in an industry that can feel out of our control, everything's left up to luck, who you know, being in the right place at the right time, and constantly changing, we wanted to focus on what is within our control.
1: And so with that in mind, we decided to have our friends on to have conversations about creativity, headspace, and things that we do to create sustainability in our lives so we can sustain our creativity. On today's show, we have the Milk Carton Kids, which is our first show with a band with more than one person on.
0: Yeah. And we've known Joey and Kenneth for a long time and gotten to tour with them as well. So it was really exciting to get to talk to them and hear firsthand how they have been evolving and learning how to sustain this life as a musician, not only individually, but together as a duo.
1: So inherently, I think we talked a lot about boundaries We talked a lot about knowing yourself and knowing what you want and what you want to get.
0: Yeah, and how to stay centered in that regardless of what is pulling you from the outside and what pressures may be coming from outside team members and how to know when those people might not be the best team members.
1: And so with that, please enjoy our conversation with the Milk Carton Kids. Our band is
2: extra juicy. Should we... Should we come from a higher angle?
0: You guys can just like lean in together like this. Oh, yeah. Okay. Look, it's an RE20 versus SM7 hair,
2: family. It's studio hair under the headphones. Headphone hair. None of us could have as perfect a quaff as Aaron Schaefer has. <laughs>
1: hey, you know, this is called, <laughs> I dropped my kid off at daycare seven hours ago. I don't want my third cup of coffee hair. <laughs> Jeez. Go. Does that make you anxious to have that much caffeine? I'm at the limit. If I had another one, that'd be it. I'd be just right over the edge of the cliff.
3: Yeah.
2: Didn't you see? You just offered to make coffee for all of the Kiamo crews.
1: I did. I think I'm probably going to make more than our show fees doing it as well. I'm trying to get Crema on board to it. Oh, get nice. A few bags of coffee.
3: Oh yeah, make people pay, get a sponsorship. That's are smart. you? Are you a coffee snob. And I mean that in the best possible way and a, a self declared coffee style myself. Y-
1: yes, absolutely.
3: So what do you drink?
1: Right now we're having intelligentsia. It's mm-hmm. like a single origin South American.
3: What do you do? Pour over your Chemex? Don't You're, laugh. This is a por- This is what
1: keeps you sane off the road,
4: Mikhail. The entire
3: a sp- point of your deal.
4: We have uh, an espresso
0: go, machine.
3: Yeah. Okay, you go espresso. Yeah, it
1: was a that was the first pandemic purchase we
3: made and it was great. Me and Kenneth's wife got him a really nice espresso machine for Christmas last year.
0: Nice. Do you it's, do it every day? Or is it just a special mm-hmm. treat?
3: Oh, no. It's on a timer. It's a dual boiler, like from Italy. It's a whole proper Ooh. deal. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Wow. This
3: was definitely a go-in-together-on-it kind of a gift. Yeah, that's yeah.
0: not what we have. We've, <laughs> no. we've got the budget one.
3: Yeah. yeah. It
1: definitely yeah. punches above its weight, though. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That's definitely. a good product
3: review right there. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, thank you guys so much for... Being willing to do this and to chat with us. Oh, yeah. We like to start the episode just kind of setting the tone that and setting the preface. We want to talk about the things that we don't normally talk about when we're out doing interviews promoting our music. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that you guys especially being a band and being in the music business for so long, how you have evolved and learned to care for yourselves, to keep your creativity first and foremost, and not just get caught up in the business of trying to gain more. So how you sustain your creativity and care for yourself in that manner. And you guys are our first duo that we've interviewed. Everybody's been Individuals, So I'm curious. A lot of our conversations with individuals are about their own relationship with themselves. But with you guys, Mm. how much you have to do that then interpersonally with each other? Is this something that you guys talk about through your relationship?
2: Oh, yeah. It's a decade of back massages, you know? (laughs)
1: You got to keep the bank account full.
2: Well, you can actually vouch
0: that that's not a joke. That's
2: a lot of Theraguns involved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I prefer the bare hands to the Theragun, but I'll take what I can get.
3: Not a big bare hand guy myself. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> now, the main thing, honestly, was like 13 years ago when I was in my late 20s and very much drunk and very much spending 24 hours a day trying to like empire build and manifest this career that I would go to sleep every night dreaming about. Joey showed up and said, hey, we can't work more than two weeks because I got to get home or my wife will divorce me.
3: Which is not something I planned in advance. That was something that was emergent Mm -hmm. from our schedule. Like We started working a bunch, and then after a little while, it was like, oh, once that third weekend rolls around, everything goes to shit. Mm -hmm. So... That was the first in a long series of boundary setting that we've been, you know, I think we're actually in a really good place with that type of thing as of only the last couple of years, like after 10 years, I feel like we both understand each other enough. And also like a lot of the self-care that you're probably talking about with other artists, maybe we started to feel responsible for that side of things on each other's behalf, Mm -hmm. but it took a long time. Or just
2: as you suggested, one of the nice things about being a duo is that oftentimes things get tackled from both sides, and there's a perspective that you know if either of us were alone, we wouldn't necessarily default to and so I bring up joey's immediate role from the outset as something that like me in that time of my life with the kind of person I was would have never even observed that kind of boundary, let alone try to maintain it or honor it. I look back on that and feel like I received a real lease on life there.
0: Did you have any pushback at the time? Like, do you guys, when you have boundaries like that, is there ever disagreement or a meeting to come around to it? Or is it just an instant like, okay, you set that rule then we'll we respect play it. pretty
3: well now right big fight. The, if, there was a giant fight in 2014 we've had our share of giant fights but they haven't been about the boundaries in terms of like how much work needs to be done or even what type of work yeah i think it's pretty clear when someone is setting a real boundary and neither of us is particularly histrionic about saying like, I'll never do this again. And then like going back on it, mm-hmm. we take it seriously if we're setting a boundary and it's after careful consideration. And so it, that hasn't been, that hasn't been our problem.
1: You guys each had solo careers before Milk, Carton and Kids, right?
3: Yeah, it's generous of you to <laughs> define it that way. Were either of you in bands? Like, is this, is this your kind of first like? The bands were always our name. Kenneth had spent yeah. a good deal of time actually like putting a band together behind himself that had an identity and was great, like a musical identity and was really good. I was playing with whoever would play for a hundred bucks a night at the hotel cafe, mm-hmm. which is a lot of great musicians who I'm still friends with to this day and who you guys probably know and who play with everybody still, but like. I didn't have creative vision in mind for, like, what my solo project would sound like beyond just writing the songs in my bedroom. Well, but also in that iteration, you were, like, the boss. It's not like you were...
0: You weren't communally making decisions.
3: Totally. But so were you of your band, but your band had, like, the same people all the time for years, and you had a vision for you the what you wanted them to do. More than just like show up and know the charts.
2: Yeah, but we were both like little lords of our own tiny kingdom that we were making. We weren't like having to listen to the pedal steel players say, I want the front
3: seat. Uh, well, there was no touring, so there was no front seat. Everybody showed up in their own car and right. paid for their own parking.
2: Although you did a whole vast amount of like worldwide touring. I did touring we were but a
3: band. never with any that was I couldn't afford to bring anybody with me on a tour. Yeah. That was just like in my Volvo,
2: but you were like you went around the world with Jay Nash, did he teach you a few things about being sane and healthy on tour, or did he
3: just no, he taught me how to like <laughs> like that what the, that this staying sane and healthy on tour is already a level of privilege and achievement that I would say I was not even aware of or trying to achieve before we met yeah. any touring I did was like. How do you not sleep outside for $40? Yeah. You know, how do you eat at a truck stop every day and not, you know, die or rupture your insides in some way? Like, where are the bananas in the truck stop? That's what I learned from (laughs) touring with Jay Nash and (laughs) Amber Rubarth, who are like my, you know, that you like go through battle with these people and they're like my close friends. But we weren't like, how do we take care of ourselves? It was like...
0: Yeah, I mean, physically
3: get to the next place.
0: Early on, you're just surviving and you're just trying to like sacrifice whatever you can to be able to keep playing shows. And I think that weeds people out. Like some people, Mm -hmm. then it's like, fuck this, I'm not going to tour if it doesn't get to a level of more comfort soon enough. But even when it gets to a level of comfort, I think there's still then a whole load of ways that touring can be negatively impactful on your life as a human on the day-to-day and so like those conversations when you're in this for 10 plus years and what you learn like boundaries of I can't be gone for more than two weeks because that messes everything up at home and if my home life gets messed up what's the point of any of this and also like finding you know the little things of like choosing to eat well on tour as much as you can or committing to exercise or like not partying all the time i was thinking about like my younger days of touring the show ends and then it's like now you drink and party and i was like all the touring i've done this past year is with you guys and joe and we were like there's no hang it's like the show ends and get out as fast as possible maybe mm-hmm. people are having like one drink or something and i was like the one hang that we had was we went to an aquarium <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. it's daytime. So you had your baby. <laughs> yes, yeah. we have we have babies and booch. Yeah, you can't party with the baby. No. Yeah. we got kombucha and babies now. No part, of, definitely part of it is just getting older, and part of it is if you're still doing it when you're as old as we are, that means it went well at some point, <laughs> and you didn't quit. Right. Mm-hmm. So at some point you turn the corner and you're like, oh shit, I am going to be doing this indefinitely. Which is like its own form of making it, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're trying not to sleep outside and all you've got is $40, you're like, I hope that someday I don't have to wonder if I'm going to quit. Yeah. And so like you get over that hump and then you're like, all right, shit, now this might be like 30 years if all goes well. How am I going to do this for 30 years rather than just like get through this week? So one thing that we have going for us is that Kenneth is some sort of a Yelp prodigy. Like, we'll be in the ruralest of Iowa, and Kenneth will somehow locate the co-op market where you can go and get, like, beautiful deli sandwiches with, like, the local produce. I think probably most people on that same routing are just like, it's Carl's Jr. Day, I guess. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. and like you got canned tuna from
2: the gas station in Oklahoma.
3: Oh,
1: I have a strong no tuna in the van policy, kind of across the board. I don't care. I don't care if you hired me and I'm a side man. There's no tuna in the van. I can wait outside.
0: Our sardines. We yeah. have a beloved keyboard player who she always packs a can of sardines, and we're like, oh. really. <laughs> in terms of
3: canned fish, I'm a smoked oyster proponent, but huh? I have them in the green room, which is I feel like about to get banned. By Kenneth, on account of the scent, but they are delicious. Green room's. Fine. It depends on what green room. You green are. room is different than the van, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a while, we were getting them, and Kenneth was making a lot of noise about it.
0: So, what are some other boundaries that you guys have have set and learned that are, have been helpful?
3: Oh, someone told me, and I can't
2: remember who. So maybe now I become that someone. Kenneth Pattingale once said D- that when you get home from tour, unpack your bags. That's really good. I don't do that. Yeah. Because, like, and not even, you probably unpack some of them, but you leave the stuff you know that's going to go back in your thing. Like, unpack the whole thing and put the suitcase wherever you store it for,
1: like, when you're not going on a trip.
3: Oh, I see what you mean. I do that. It just takes me three days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah
1: I mean, I'm either, like, when I walk in the door or it'll be, like, a two week. Weeks, or, year or a, year. a yeah. month. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but psychologically it's huge. You can
3: tell how deep your post tour depression is by how long it takes you to get fully out of your suitcase.
2: But I find it's like that's just a totem for like so many other things that also are I feel like relate even to non musical things where just the small kinds of housekeeping and small little ways that you advocate for yourself and your own space and your own creature comforts without being full O C D or without being unreasonable are I don't know, the kind of place-setting activities that give your brain a little bit more peace. There's a number of facets of my life where it's very clear that, like, whatever has happened subconsciously concurrent to my present existence actually carries, like, a lot of weight and has really significant impact on one's mental health and on one's experience, and that, like, there's a whole other story going on behind the scenes that often I have not been aware of that one day it pops up and says like, oh, this has been going on for a year and you haven't been thinking about it, but now it's time to deal with it. Mm. And I feel like the more, you know, exercise you're doing as far as those small little things that are keeping house helps just contextualize all of that energy to be something that doesn't end up overwhelming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, resonates with me I again I've related to Looney Tunes like running off a cliff and not falling until they look down like that happens to yeah, me yeah. all <laughs> the time I'm like clear <laughs> yeah. off the cliff and I'm like oh wow I'm completely burnt out but it's also a seed of why we wanted to start this podcast is because we saw so many people that had been touring for years and grinding it out and doing things that were really uncomfortable hit the pandemic and like Once the shock of like everything is shut down, kind of settled, people are like, oh, wow, I can like take care of myself and I can Mm -hmm. be healthy. And like, wow, what we were just doing for the last decade is crazy. But we're seeing now that everything is opening back up that people are just rushing right back into like the same habits and all. And we want to same thing, like remind people like, hey, unpack your suitcase when you get home.
3: That's really interesting. I feel like so far I'm proud of the two of us for... So far, having learned, like, taken real lessons from that phenomenon, which would definitely happen to us, and as we sort of set up our new album cycle and map out what all the touring is going to be, I think we're being pretty good about sticking to the boundaries that we realized we were going to need and making it, you know, setting ourselves up for the next two years to be something that feels really good and is really rewarding and, like, There's a lot of work to be done, but also I think we know what parts of the work we love and get like deep fulfillment from and what parts of it suck. And sometimes you got to do some of the stuff that sucks, but like maybe making sure that is always in service of some part of it that you love. So so far, I think... We're hopefully not going to fall into the trap of just rushing back in because everything is open.
2: Yeah, earlier this year we were on a conference call figuring out the routing, and Joey goes,
3: "Yeah, so I, I think what we this looks good, but what
2: we really want to do is like eight shows and then take three months off, and then another eight shows." And I
3: went, "I think I said I six said, weeks, uh, by the way." That three months, that period gets longer every time Kenneth tells I the said, story. I uh, said, "Hang
2: on, guys, let us call you back," and then we hung up. And I said, Joey, what the hell are you talking about? Three months
3: off? That's what we agreed to. That's what we said.
0: (laughs) Well, I remember on the tour where I was supporting you guys last year, you guys were planning or about to do like a UK EU tour. And it was like the day you guys found out about this last show that would have put it over the edge for the third weekend. And mm-hmm. I remember, like, witnessing you guys and talking about that. it was Father's Day weekend. Yeah, and really being like, no, we can't do this. And then I think you guys ended up not doing the tour at all, right?
3: That's true, yeah.
0: Yeah. Is that something that was just inherently in you to have the value of, like, these are the, my priorities regardless of what the consequences might be or what people might be telling me I need to be flexible on? Mm. Or is that something I had to work towards? Like, I feel like I'm someone – there's a whole load of reasons why, but both Aaron and my brother have said that I'm like a dog chasing a tennis ball, which is not very nice, but it's also not untrue. Yeah,
2: yeah. Under Where no I'm just like, should your husband yeah. call you a dog? <laughs>
3: just
0: yeah.
1: It was a learning experience. No, just in the way that <laughs> so the dog funny.
3: chases the tennis balls. Yeah, yeah. You're but not helping, yeah. Joey.
0: It's fun and exciting, but also exhausting to be partnered up with somebody who's always like oh that thing sure I'll do that oh that thing and running all over and not having boundaries and I think often that has been detrimental so I'm like when people are like no this is what I know is going to be in the long term better for me regardless of what carrot is being dangled in front of me saying that I need to be able to do this like When talking to your agent and team and when you say like, no, I don't want to tour that much. How hard is that or is it not hard? Is it just, you
3: know, I have a short thing real quick is I like to frame it differently for myself. I don't mind talking about it as like a boundary or things that I need, but there's like an inherent language of guilt in all that stuff where it's like the implication is you should be doing all these things, but in some way that you can't. Because it'll lead to bad things or whatever. And there's also the implication that maybe if you were like tougher or a different type of person, that Mm -hmm. you could do all these things that you should be doing. So, what helps me is thinking about it in terms of like, what do I want to do? I wanted to be home on Father's Day. And the idea of playing another show at the end of a UK tour. Now, I want to be home on Father's Day, but like, I also want to play on the Jules Holland show in London. So the fact that it was just another show on tour also factors into it, but it wasn't necessarily a boundary for me. It was just like, do I want to be home on Father's Day or do I want to add another relatively inconsequential show to a tour that is not like a high impact thing? Mm -hmm. So framing it in terms of like, what do you really want to do? Then you can start to think about like, what's rewarding for us? Like, what do we get our highs from our peak experiences from? Try and chase down as many of those things as you can throughout the year. And some of those are music related and career related. Some of those are business related, like smart things to do for our career. Some of them are just creatively rewarding and some of them are family oriented and some of them are like self oriented. But if you can figure out what you really want to do, what you love doing, then it doesn't feel like I'm setting a boundary to protect myself. It feels more like I'm pursuing. I'm still chasing the tennis ball. It's just that not all the tennis balls are like shows that I want to do. Mm
0: -hmm. There's
3: other tennis balls to chase.
0: There's more in your life than your career. Sure.
3: Yeah. Well, the other thing that comes out of that,
2: which I think is so important to remind people, is that the people that work with you aren't necessarily, one, that they're not necessarily right about what they're suggesting you do. Mm -hmm. If anybody's ever telling you that you have to do something in order to achieve X, Y, Z, I will be the voice of reason to say again here that especially in music, that is not true. Superstars have been made in all sorts of ways and there is not a game plan that actually gets there. And to clarify, The terms of engagement, I think, literally all the way down to straight up amateur level musician to find the courage in whatever your own little universe is to say, like, here's what I want to do and here's what I'm willing to give up for it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where the conversation should end. And if you're working with somebody who is not very encouraged or inspired by that because they want you to be working more, they want you to be doing something different, blah, blah, blah. I would suggest they're the wrong fit for you to be working with. They should be listening to what you're putting out before trying to exact their kind of vision because they're not really tuned into the long term of what's going on if they're behaving that way. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things I learned from my wife. She's very much like you, Michaela, and then even maybe a few l- levels further, which is once not only is she like eager to say yes to anybody who you know finds value in what she does, But the minute she does say yes, she goes, like, so far above and beyond what's necessary to satisfy those requirements, whether or not it's out of an instinct to try to please people or to do your best or to stave off some insecurity. Whatever it is, she, like, gives way too much. And on the other side of it, in my position, when you see it happen, it takes so much out of her, and it's wired into her nature that there's so many times where I'm like trying to shake her, being like, don't feel like you have to do this. Yeah. Because His wife is even... a great
3: artist. whose stage name is Verasola. Everybody should go listen to Verasola.
2: Yeah. She's terrific. But she'll even, you know, a conversation will happen and she goes like, oh, fuck, we're not going to see each other in April. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she says like, Well, they they need me to tour in Europe in April. And I'm like, they need you to. Like, you're in charge. What are you talking (laughs) about? And we've never been able to bridge that gap because she feels beholden to the people that work with her out of a sense of responsibility that's totally real and totally valid but to whatever extent anybody can like give themselves the authority to remember no like you're in charge most people that you work with in the music business are working on commission and that to me is always a very healthy reminder of how the balance of power goes and what the direction of authority is they're taking a percentage of what you do And so you're Mm -hmm. the person making the decisions. You're the person doing the
3: work. Michaela, do you feel, not pressure, but like you put pressure on yourself to, you know, oblige your team when they bring you opportunities. And like if you say no, then people, they'll be disappointed or disincentivized or whatever to keep bringing you more opportunities.
0: Yeah, I have long operated in that way. I've long operated with the mindset of like, don't say no to anything. Mm. And I think... Again, a lot of the motivation behind this podcast and these conversations we're having is because of all the conversations we're having with each other and our friends and are just – I'll speak only for myself and not for Aaron, but I'm – in like a place of, obviously, I became a mother for the first time. I, a lot of personal stuff happened with my mother. My relationship to my career and the pandemic, everything happening, I'm in a time of transition where I'm really evaluating what I've done to this point and how much I have given my power away to people I've worked with or to people who've offered opportunities to me out of a place of, I think fear and desire of getting things so thinking that those opportunities will expire and also feeling like you don't have any leverage until you're at a certain level but I don't know what that level is and that's what like I've been really realizing because even having the confidence to say well I don't want to do that so therefore I'm not going to do it and you work for me can be hard for some people Because and I also often wonder if there's gender that plays into this for women feeling like you kind of are already like in a lower level of power because I've heard so many times of like, oh, we already have enough women on the roster or we already have enough women on the festival. So you already kind of are feeling like getting people to work for you or getting opportunities is so hard. So you want to please as much as possible because they could go away. And until you feel really confident about if I lose this person, I'll find a new one because I've got an audience to back me up. I have a lot of value that's tangible data, money driven value versus no, I have value because I'm a good artist who works hard and I have potential and I'm great to work with. It's harder to kind of stand in that strength. So I think about a lot of that stuff now and making decisions based not on because I hope it's going to get me something, but more about what feels right and feels healthy and good and not anxiety driven and threatening. Because I also think I've just had so many conversations with people who have the things that I've wanted at a higher level, are selling more tickets, have, you know, all the TV, whatever. And they're not necessarily any happier or less anxious. And that's another catalyst for this. I was talking to so many friends this year who on the outside seem like they are doing so well. And then I talked to them personally and they're like, oh my God, I'm having such a hard time. This is the hardest Mm -hmm. year financially or personally or emotionally or whatever. So now my whole approach is like, okay, I'm trying to learn. How to live a life intentionally about how to have a good life that includes a creative career and not I will do anything to try and build my music career.
4: Because
0: mm-hmm. I don't think it's the answer. <laughs> I don't think success as we kind of superficially judge it of being on a bus and having a full tour schedule, I used to think that was the goal. And now oh, I don't get don't a bus. Think so.
3: oh, yeah. <laughs> don't get it. whatever you do, don't get a bus. <laughs> yeah. That's when it all goes downhill.
2: It's true. That's definitely true.
3: It's, yeah, no, I feel you, though. I relate to that a lot. The yeah. only
2: thing it makes me think of when you're talking is, for God's sakes, everybody get off the internet. <laughs> Holy hell.
1: Yeah. it's a, Just
2: get off the internet.
1: Well, it, do what you can to keep a good perspective. I mean, kind of like what you were saying about, like, basically giving yourself permission to say no or giving yourself permission to focus on what's right for you. You know, I see a lot of people that are earlier on in their career or maybe not so early in their career, but like having their first experiences with like a really credible agent or manager or label or what. And they feel subservient to that person. I think maybe it's because we're all trying to build careers around a passion, which is a really crazy thing to do. You see these people that can very tangibly offer a next step in your career and more opportunity and more Sustainability to be able to create more and do more of what you want. That I think it's really easy to inadvertently give all your power to that person. Yeah. And feel subservient to them when in reality, you are the boss. They would make no money if it wasn't for you.
2: Yeah. The other thing that's helpful to me or has been helpful for me personally, even though this is kind of like a therapy 101 deal and also annoyingly kind of taps into the self help tropes of the day, but it is something I've experienced is that. So much of my career was spent not actually experiencing what was happening in the moment because I was constantly occupied with my actions helping to get me to the next step, Mm. whatever that is. And to me, it was, I guess, the biggest, the one-two punch change was getting cancer and then the COVID pandemic. And funny enough, cancer wasn't enough to pull me back into the moment. But once our job was taken away from us and we started to tour again, it was somehow immediately easy to enjoy standing on stage with Joey, making music, and be grateful for it, which, again, I credit the cancer experience to providing half of that for me, because I don't know if I would have had the context to even understand that while COVID happened. But the combination of those two reminded me, again, in a very simple way, like, oh, this is the whole point of what's going on. And when I think about the last 10 years of our career, the amount of cool things that I've done, and when I think back on them, I didn't watch the show, or I was out in the alley smoking a cigarette or I didn't talk to so and so because I was like, I don't know, I was chasing a girl, like whatever all of the things are, it's been another real healthy reminder to like, when you're doing something cool, hang out and be in it. And that even helps to contextualize when you get the email from somebody saying like, do you want to do this? Immediately now I think about like, well, do I actually want to go and experience that? And that's a different thing than 10 years ago when I would receive the email and think like, oh, is this something that helps me get towards that goal that I've planted up in my brain right. is it um, something
3: you want to have done <laughs> yeah. and
2: that's kind of huge and is hard to remember because it's not even just this business I know plenty of people in life whose lives operate that way that aren't in music or aren't their own bosses or whatever you know that's why Yeah, just
0: like that's the stepping why there are stones.
2: social cliques and that's why there's gossip and that's why there's infidelity and all these mm-hmm. things because people are constantly acting on elements in life that aren't very present and aren't very rational. And it's a good reminder, especially with music, because it's all so chaotic to be like, no, what's actually real and what's not?
3: I love that. Here's another thing that's a little self-helpy, which is kind of the same as that, which is every time you say yes to something, you're not just saying yes to that thing, you're saying no to something else because you're Mm -hmm. committing your time and yourself to doing that thing. So I love saying, like, don't be afraid to say no, but I also... Whenever we say no to something, it really helps me to think about not what I'm saying no to, but what am I saying yes to? Like, why mm-hmm. do I want to say no to this thing? It's because I want to do something else instead. Is because I need that, either I need that time to, let's say it's we're saying no to a career thing, because I need that time to be devoted to my family or to myself because I want to do this other thing for my career and it really helps me, like if I'm talking to our team and they say, oh, should we go do this thing? It helps me to think about it like not just saying like, no, I don't want to do that, but saying like, no, you know what we should do is not work that week, but next month, let's look at doing something like this or have some other idea yeah. for the next month and be like, that'll be the plan, you because yeah. sometimes when there's just a flow of incoming things and you feel like all you can do is say yes or no and like respond to everything, can be really helpful if you're trying to take control to be like, here is what we want to do. Like, here is the strategy, which I feel like we've been pretty good about for this upcoming album cycle for ourselves. Is like, we want to do this many shows in the US and these are the types of shows we want to do. Like, for us, we're really enjoying smaller shows with a standing audience and cheaper tickets because we have this really broad audience and we can play these theaters with $45 tickets and a certain segment of our audience is more likely to come they're older they're quieter you know the old folkies who we Mm -hmm. love and adore and identify with so much and we've just played to that side of our audience for so long that we're like kind of really into this to playing in rock clubs where everybody's going to press up against the side of the stage and we play our same sad songs but people kind of go ape shit and like we actually make a bit less money doing that But if we come home from a couple weeks of doing that, we're all energized and like excited and it feels great. And so you can call that strategy or you can call that just doing what you want to do. But it requires saying no to like some of the theater shows that come up and get offered to us. Some of them we're still doing, but like having a vision or some clarity for what you do want to do helps you say no to the things that don't fit into that. So you're not just always responding.
0: Right. You know, and we want
3: to go to Europe and we want to go to Australia. Okay, so we have these boundaries. Right. But like it's fucking far to go to Australia. So maybe we push some of our boundaries to make sure we go to Australia, because I also really believe that it's okay to have goals. It's okay to want to get to the next level, but make it fit in with your whole life. Right. So if we want to go to Australia, we're going to maybe have to be gone that third weekend. But it's once every two years. And it means that we're going to build in some real time on either side of that tour and know that we're saying no to things that come up on either side of that, because that's a priority. We want to go to Australia. We want to be in Australia for personal reasons and also for career reasons to build that up. And like Kenneth said, what do you really want and what are you willing to sacrifice to get it? I don't think you have to sacrifice nothing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to be willing to sacrifice a little bit, Mm -hmm. but if it's in service of something you really want, then that helps clarify like what you're really willing to give up for it.
1: That's really cool. I think I inherently think of boundaries as keeping things out, being kind of closed off and thinking of when you say no to something, what are you actually like creating space for? Kind of makes it like a channel in a way. And that's
3: a really cool. Yeah, that really helps me. It's actually something I've learned from Kenneth because Kenneth has always had a little bit of a, I felt at different times in our careers, you've always had like a, specific idea for what we should do that's based on what our band is specifically. Mm-hmm. And you've always had a good instinct about the ways that we do and don't fit in to various models or formulas f- for success. And there's a whole industry out there that's ready if you have any amount of success, they're ready to plug you in to the shit that is there.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's really helpful to remember like, what is unique about you, both creatively and personally. And like a lot of us are not really candidates for being plugged in to some mainstream formulas for musical success. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that and realizing that you have to sort of not just say no to that, but also figure out a way that you are going to take what you do that's unique and who you are that's unique and build something compelling and cool and fun and rewarding around that. You know, it makes it more like empowering or fun to have boundaries rather than just being like things that you can't do.
0: Boundaries aren't limitations,
3: right?
2: Also, everybody, get off the internet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Telling you,
2: it's just well, as you know, simple as, as that. That's, it really, is, as the only like woman on the phone call, Michaela, I will let you set me straight on this spontaneous train of thought, but through various. Of oh, as my the only rel- woman,
0: you'll let me chime in to this
2: oh. <laughs> yeah yeah i'll allow you. you
3: already you already fucked it up kenneth
2: <laughs> i chose my verbs carefully i didn't say i'd let you right you did, you did. i said please I'll edit that <laughs> out. Oh. No, no no leave it in as can, soon as he's I done talking
3: then you can have a turn <laughs> no
0: this is going to be the soundbite for social media to advertise Great. your episode. yeah that's all
3: fine <laughs> i'm gonna let you talk i'm gonna <laughs> let you finish no this will i don't uh, whatever
2: <laughs> you guys can all set me straight when this falls. You out guys, can we
3: please not use oh, gendered okay.
2: <laughs> So through an entire lifetime I've railed against girlfriend's friends narrative about specifically wearing makeup and at my suggestion of opting out of makeup in real life, the possible upsides always being pushed back by specifically like mm-hmm. the idea that there are certain societal expectations specifically with women especially with regard to how they make up their face that if you decided not to do that there's just a whole host of shit that you would possibly forsake or give up or like you not meeting men's expectations or society's expectations you like immediately blackball yourself from being able to take part in I don't know reality. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt the courage or the ability to say that with authority outside of just offering an opinion, except now that we're in the social media age, I feel like all genders are being thrust into this same thing, and especially independent musicians. When I say everybody get off the internet, anybody who hasn't yet achieved their career goals The first five things they'll say are the exact same things that, like, every past girlfriend has told me about, like, not making up their face before going out of the house. Like, you can't do this or the promoter is not going to, like, pay attention to you. You have to be intentional about the way that you want to express your image to the world, you know, each Mm. one after the other. And I feel like now, finally, we live in a world... Where I can say, I can just offer my opinion finally without the caveat that I'm not entitled to it, which is bullshit. Just fucking take it off. Just log out. It straight up doesn't matter. It's not going to affect your life. You're imprisoning yourself if you buy into it.
3: And also, everybody, check out our Instagram for we're announcing a new single. (laughs) In a couple of weeks, it's at the Milk Carton Kids. No, that's another great one. Smash that
2: follow button. That's another great one. <laughs> but anytime I offer this, somebody says, well, you have somebody that like does, does your Instagram. You. you can do mm-hmm. it. And, and again, I will call bullshit. It, It would all be fine.
0: I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. One, I agree. I think social media is extremely negative for many of us. For many people, I really worry about what it's doing for teenagers and kids. I worry what it does to my mind and everybody that I talk to. And yet, I also think it has some really positives, the way that you can connect with people. I could write a very long list of all of the positive things that have come from spending time on Instagram and Twitter, people that I've connected with or met or relationships I've developed, whatever. But, and I would probably say, unfortunately, I do think you need it in promotion. I mean, if the Milk Carton Kids was a brand new band today, not, you know, having 10 plus years of the success and fan base that you've built What would that look like to try and start booking shows at the Skinny Pancake in Vermont and trying to get people out and not have social media to try and spread the word?
3: I don't know. We did do it slightly before social media. So maybe it just is different now. But I'm in the middle, too. I think it would be fine to get off social media. I also think it's not inherently a horrible, terrible thing. And I like to think about it the same way of the boundaries. It's like, why are you on there? Mm-hmm. You know, the huge lesson for me from the pandemic is that, like, I feel a real awareness now that fans of our type of music, of our genre of music and of relatively unknown bands, non-mainstream bands like ours, are a real community with each other and with the bands and with the venues in their communities. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not actually that tapped into it in real life as a music fan, other than we go to Largo all the time and there's a good community around there but we're like we're backstage. Mm-hmm. But so I don't know that I've really been like a die-hard music fan in the way that fans of our community are and when they when the music was taken away from us it was taken away from them and like that really came back to us in a big way over social media when we started doing videos or whatever and just hearing from people who being a fan of music like this is their whole Life and their mm-hmm. friendships are based around it, their social calendars are built around it, and they like when we make videos.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So, I think about our whole career a little bit differently now, in terms of like we're taking part in this sort of community and ecosystem of people who play music and collaborate on music, and venues that present music who we're in partnership with, and the fans who come to see music who. Are like not normal people. Like this is not people going to see like a Neil Diamond concert in Vegas because that was who was playing. Like these are people who like unknown bands like us are like fucking into it and they yeah. need it. And so we're. I mean there's a little. I t- hate to say it like this, but I try to tap into a little bit of a like a service minded thing where like I for the first time felt good maybe that we were providing something to the world that make actually. Made people feel good, <laughs> made people happy, and was like worthwhile for that. And to go even further into a risky thing, like you can do that on whatever medium, YouTube, Instagram. You can put out a 30, 45 second video or two minute video of yourself performing, whatever. That's like, I've cried at YouTube videos of a beautiful performance. Like, I've had a transcendent mm-hmm. musical experience of someone playing in their bedroom. And like trying to achieve that is something worthwhile. So I don't know, trying to like put a put that positive spin on it. What can you do with it?
0: Yeah. And I think you have to know what how you're affected by it. Kenneth, I remember when I first started hanging out with you years ago, you were like, I don't go on the Internet. And I remember you sh- sharing and but, read
3: comments. and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, You really- were just
0: like, I can't I don't like to look at it. So I just don't go on there.
3: Well,
2: this is where I was going to get to because I everything that you all just said is perfectly wonderful and valid and you're talking to a guy who is still on the internet. Mm-hmm. I go on every day and I quite enjoy it. But I do think that there should be a massive firewall that you erect right in front of yourself that keeps you from believing any of your responses, unless they're like genuine emotional responses for something that improves your character or something that connects you to your feelings. Outside of that, the screen is lying to you. And I think that it's all based on this weird, tricky social thing that taps into all of our follies as human beings. The same way that it did in an analog way, that if you were in a, a room with people gossiping and you can't actually hear what the person across the room is saying, but it gets to you what they're purportedly saying and you have a reaction to it. It's just not real. And whatever you can do to filter that out or not have that affect your day is really important. Yeah, there were years where I couldn't... I think it was either our Tiny Desk concert or something. That went on there, and there were just hundreds of comments of people arguing about whether or not I stole the guitar stylings of Dave Rawlings as if he like invented the guitar and how to play it. Mm-hmm. And it was such a bummer. And that was also, like, never mind were there people saying really awful things that were hurtful, but even the, like, literal legions of people coming to my defense trying to counteract those people meant nothing because all I could see was the stuff that was critical, which, by the way, I get it. Those people... They hear it, and then I sound enough like Dave Rawlings to them that they're going to be weirdly protective over some person they've never met. At least they're coming from some reality. I can't imagine what happens. Like the first time we had toured, I don't know, 800, 900 shows, headline shows, and then we do a collaborative tour with us and Sarah Jarose, and we put a post up, and the first 10 things that were said were just these, like, kind of fat, middle aged white dudes which i could see because their picture was right there next Mm -hmm. to their comment literally the first 10 things that anybody said were just comments on how sarah jerose looked yeah and i was like whoa we've done 800 shows and like promoted 800 shows and never was the first thing i read somebody talking about how me and joey looked it was always this kind you know old person saying, oh, this is the next iteration of
3: Simon and Garfunkel. And that happened. I was like, whoa, this is different. And then, well, there was the time on our first tour when we played at the Doug Furr Lounge in uh, Portland. Uh, The very first poster we made was up in the bathroom and somebody graffitied on it with marker. And it said, whatever with the hair. (laughs) <laughs> right. That's that true. was that was and an you're, early. Ac- you're
0: never gonna forget that.
3: <laughs> there was so much of our hair on that first poster. I will say, Kenneth had hair as big as mine, and it was all just blown out.
0: I remember that poster, which is probably why I referenced Skinny Pancake, because I remember seeing that poster oh, yeah. at Skinny Pancake.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Well, they weren't as snarky in, uh, at the Skinny Pancake bathroom as they were at the—I never minded all that stuff, but I do understand, like—
0: For women, for sure. And I don't know, Kenneth, were you— did, Oh, yeah, it's when, terrible. Were you prefacing all of that to allow me to make a comment about makeup, too? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you keep it short— <laughs> I think he just, I I think they just stopped talking, so the runway is clear now. Yeah.
0: But yeah, for women, it's just like, it's a whole other, your physical appearance, what you look like, if you're wearing makeup or not, if you look like you're trying to be sexy or not, if you're too sexy, if you are sexy, it's just like, it's absurd. It's dumb, but it's just like, that's what people think is fair game and what we're supposed to talk about.
3: How do you deal with that?
0: I mean, I feel like I have a pretty good—I started playing shows by playing a lot of bar gigs, so I would play, like, three-hour sets of country covers, and I feel like that was really good training ground to, like, figure out how to, like, deal with insulting comments from people when a lot of times they have no idea that they're insulting you. Like, it's not intentional. So I often feel like I try to not make it super tense, but not try to, like— avoid making them uncomfortable like i try to make it clear in some gentle teasing way how fucked up it is what Mm -hmm. you know what you just said to me sometimes there's like such a shock from it it's hard to ever have a comeback but yeah i remember my last record two records ago desert dove i have a song called if i wanted your opinion you would know but the cover of the album i'm wearing like a tiny skirt and tiny top where I'm like, my midriff is showing. And I got so many comments, especially from older radio DJs and stuff, of like, So do you think, uh, you know, you're kind of a feminist and you have this like feminist message, but the fact that you like look sexy, does that counter, like, does that cancel it out? Like, how do you do that? And I just remember being like, Oh, because if you're a woman who believes that you should be listened to or be independent, then clearly you should be hideously ugly. And I even at that time had a very close friend of mine re- reach out and ask me like, he called me and was like, I'm really nervous to ask you this, Michaela, because I'm afraid you're gonna bite my head off. But like all your photos lately, are you like trying to be a sex symbol? And I was like, well, I just have so many questions for you in return. like." What should I look like in a photograph? Should I? I I
3: just want to say I've been trying to have us be sex symbols for this entire (laughs) 10 years, and it is not working. But we've never gone for a midriff.
0: Yeah.
1: Michaela's actually using this opportunity to launch a consulting business. So we'll give you yeah, the info at the end. Yeah, right? specifically
0: for male middle-aged folk bands.
1: <laughs> Desirous <laughs> of achieving sex symbol status. Should call this middle age.
0: I was going to see if you were going to get upset about that.
1: But you got oh, yeah. comments from women too, right?
0: Oh, yeah. On the tour with you. I had it oh, yeah. with you guys. I had a this woman came up to me and was like, you look different on this other cover like i guess you look more motherly now that's what she said to me <laughs> and she was like People i guess you fucking
2: insane
0: but my point is like as a woman you can't win if you don't no. yeah, yeah. you're gonna get demolished for not being attractive enough if you don't put effort in if you put effort in it's the wrong effort you're trying too hard you're showing too much skin i'm like do i wear a bag you could look sexy with a sweatshirt or you're mid basically mm-hmm. it's pointless to even really try to have a comeback because right it's bullshit
3: so what do you do
0: i don't even know i think i just say like i think i laugh a lot (laughs) i try and have comebacks
1: you're very talented at saying like two words like oh yeah and having it say like a whole statement
0: Mm. between that Mm -hmm. and your
1: look they're pretty much like Oh, got it. Yeah, I'll take that shirt. And, yeah, because it, it varies
0: yeah, It va- over the years. It varies so much between like genuinely curious that is insulting and to also like sexual harassment. Of, yeah. You know, I've had a guy at a merch table like out loud, wonder how long it would take to unbutton my skirt. And I'm just like, oh. what the fuck is wrong with you?
3: I'm constantly shocked at how dehumanizing people can be in their interactions with people that they perceive in any way to be like a performer. or And with women, it's magnified a 10,000 times. And, you know, whether it's like just offering your opinion at all on his guitar playing, on your appearance, on our hair, and like... I am aware, although I can't really internalize it, but I'm aware that the difference is that the thing that women face is this sort of just constant water that we swim in. It's sort of always there. And when it happens to us, it feels like a surprising little story that Mm -hmm. we can tell, Mm -hmm. which is like, I think is a qualitative difference. But the thing that I'm starting to not really be surprised by anymore is like, people just don't think of you as like a person Mm -hmm. and so i for a little while now have just written off everybody's opinion about everything because they are not thinking of you as an individual Mm -hmm. they think you're like some product in the ether that's there for them to like review like it's on amazon Mm -hmm. i like this better than i like that including saying it right to your face Like, it doesn't stop just because you're at the merch table. Like, they still think that you've, that all of us have offered ourselves up as a product to be reviewed, and it makes them say whatever the fuck they want and not think of artists as people. It comes from that, and then you mix in the, like, you know, just sort of ingrained societal misogyny, and it gets, like, potentially dangerous. It helps me to remember sometimes that, like, they just don't think of, you as a person in that moment for sure (laughs) they think they think of you as some sort of product
1: yeah absolutely and being i guess the non-front person on the conversation here the way it appears to me is almost like these people have spent so much time with your music having your voices in their ear so much time you know probably reading about you all of that that like They're so familiar with you that they have no awareness that you guys are actually strangers, Mm -hmm. you know, boundaries. There's no boundary. They're like, oh, I know you. You're Joey and Kenneth. Your
3: hair is weird. I had a turning point with the sort of relating to fans like on an individual level and what helped me with the Internet and people on the Internet, comments from people. One time somebody wrote to us. I had made a joke about a miscarriage on stage. My wife had just had a miscarriage, a couple of them. And I forget exactly what we said, but it didn't feel like that big of a moment. And I honestly can't remember what we said, but it didn't feel like that big of a moment. It was really funny. It probably wasn't. It, <laughs> I
0: it was probably just, just said the word
3: to miscarriage in reference to something. And anyway, a woman in the audience wrote that she had recently had a miscarriage and she was incredibly hurt and distraught that I had said whatever I had said. And because I, we had, uh, this was like a year period of our life where we were like trying to have our second kid and we, were, we just kept having miscarriages and it was really emotional and hard and deep depression. And probably my, one of my ways of dealing with it was to try and joke about it, but she wasn't ready to hear that because she had her own thing. And so when she said that, I felt really bad because I know how, serious it was and still was for us in that moment. And that if somebody wasn't ready to make light of something like that, that could be really fucked up and hurtful mm-hmm. and maybe probably ruined her night and her experience of seeing us. So I wrote back to her, like, sort of explaining all that and apologizing and saying, like, I'm really sorry. You know, we've been going through a lot with this exact thing and I, I didn't mean to say something that would be upsetting to you. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I hope it didn't ruin the show, whatever. And she wrote back Oh, my God. Famous people never respond to me on the Internet. That's so cool. Oh and I was like, <laughs> I I don't even I still haven't even processed what to say next. Like, that's just where the story ends. I haven't analyzed yeah. it yet. But that made me put up a big wall from then on about like, even when people feel like they're being real vulnerable, like seeing everything in a real human way, Mm -hmm. it might not be happening that way. And we're not even famous, I hope that goes without saying. (laughs) But like-
0: This reminds me of, there's like a story of when like Taylor Swift put out her re-release and All Too Well, no, maybe it was not All Too Well, maybe it was. So then all the Taylor Swift fans were like freaking out about Jake Gyllenhaal again, and they were attacking John Mayer. And there's a story where like they were like DMing and tagging John Mayer just being really mean to him. And he responded and was just like, hey, I just want you to know there's a human on this other side. I'm probably getting this wrong. But there was some interaction where they were like, oh, my God, John Mayer is a massive celebrity. How did he respond to this? And he's like. I have Instagram on my phone, and I look at the messages, and I just wanted to remind you, like, I know you're emotionally caught up in this, but, like, I'm a person, and I see this stuff. Just want to let you know. Hope you have a good day.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) I think that's a battle that can't be won.
0: Yeah, humanity.
3: Except by getting off the internet. (laughs) Except by getting off the internet or figuring out how to just mentally insulate yourself from it somehow
0: yeah but we want people to be on the internet because we want them to listen to this podcast
3: <laughs> hey nice
1: plug well done so. <laughs> well i'm gonna do a, a calling back to you guys saying that you've been able to keep that present kind of calm headspace that we all developed more or less during the pandemic it was in relation to your touring schedule has that changed your guys i mean you're for those that are going to be watching this on youtube you're obviously sitting in a studio right now has that changed your creative process as well? Like do you guys
3: create differently on on this oh. side of the world shutting down?
0: Yeah, have we even talked about creativity?
3: We haven't. And I, <laughs> I was kind of hoping you would and kind of hoping you wouldn't because, well, I don't know. The,
0: the biggest thing is, yes. is we
3: took forever to make the album which was beautiful and great.
2: Yeah, but also we did. Well, I've done this a lot producing people over the last 8 years but never really took it to heart myself which is do the best you can and then get on with it. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And this was, for me, an internal process long before it was ever poisoned by any outside influence, but I always had the instinct to wring things to death because there was something that I had in my mind and you had to really had to work hard to get it, and if it wasn't there, you'd have to keep working hard. And as I got older and maybe more talented or maybe had a better sense of self or had more accomplishment, it would become more and more clear that gap between what you wanted and what you could do was just a part of reality that you had to accept. That's maybe one of the burdens of being an adult or even a human being is not being disappointed by the thing that you are, you know, in relief of the things that you want to be. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely on the other side of the pandemic, but also I think just like now on the other side of 40 or the other side of being 10 years into a band it's a lot easier to try to lean into the things like do your best try to cast it in a good light and then maybe go eat some veggies
1: yeah you said bringing all the life out of it which is so easy to do in the studio i think yeah and it's something that i tell people that i'm working with in a production sense is that done is better than perfect which is a really scary thing to say when you have a lot of ambition and you're talking about somebody's art because it sounds like you're saying lower the bar and to me it doesn't mean that at all no, it just means like all. i tend to focus on things that are really small that if i zoom out and look at the piece as a whole the song as a whole the album as a whole what i'm really focusing on is pretty inconsequential. Yeah. And it doesn't really affect the work of art as a whole. And then that got me thinking about records that people classically say are, you know, perfect records, whether it's a Steely Dan record or a Michael Jackson record or whatever it is, and realizing, like, oh, I'm sure there are plenty of places on those records that the people that made those records are like, oh, yeah, that didn't come across oh, right. Yeah. But the way that we perceive it, not knowing what their initial intent was is that it's flawless, and it's amazing. Well, and all
2: this crap is so fetishized to death, and the biggest fetish that I think is most harmful is this thing that keeps people feeling like, in the end, that they didn't do good enough. And so many of the stories are about overcoming that, whereas your anecdote, Aaron, is blows a perfect hole in that. When you see the story told or the pictures of like Jimmy Iovine spending days trying to get the right drum sound on a Tom Petty record together, it's like, this is such bullshit. Because mm-hmm. that was right after they told you that Jimmy Iovine just started learning how to be an engineer and a producer. And like, All of these people then spent days literally learning how to do the thing that they wanted to do. It's not because they sat there like flogging themselves that they achieved some perfection. It's that they didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. If Homeboy knew how to do it, he just would have put the knob in the right spot and then it would have taken
3: five (laughs) seconds. Yeah. But instead, and it's like anytime I'm (laughs) producing an artist and they're like. It didn't take them that long because they were good. It took them that long because they were bad. Yeah, they were bad.
2: (laughs) They were just figuring out how to do it. Because every time, like, the amount of times where I've started a record and somebody goes like, well, so the first half a day we're going to do, like, getting tones and getting sounds, and I'm like whoa stop right there if we're spending time getting tones and sounds you're working with the wrong person go find somebody who wants to learn how to make music with you and do all of that we just hired three people that will get your tones right out of the box and if you want a different tone bring a fucking different drum or pick a different guitar or don't change your strings or whatever it's not that hard. You've been, like, buying into the whole deal way too much, and nobody's got time for that.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But the fetishizing goes on in the other direction, too. Oh, oh yeah. The cutting live on the floor. Yeah, yeah. like, oh, you yeah. know, Bob Dylan's band didn't know the chords when they started playing or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, You could fetishize it both ways And I don't know I see this thing both ways too Because we just made our album And we got done with it After a three week period in a studio That was already three times longer Than we had ever spent trying to make an album mm-hmm. And then we scrapped three quarters of it And started over like writing new songs Because mm-hmm. we felt like it wasn't good enough Now that sounds like some Jimmy Iovine, Tom Petty shit to me But really there's validity to both things because the other side of it is like you know we had to go back to everyone and say like the album's not done and it's probably not going to be done for months longer Mm -hmm. even though we already just spent all this money and all this time trying to do it and that release date that we talked about is not going to happen and we need more money (laughs) and everything that was a big kind of courageous thing I think too And I was just looking back at all of our lyric notes and stuff and remembering what those old songs were. And like, we could have easily put out that record. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a middling Milk Carton Kids record. And everyone would have been like, oh, it sounds like the Milk Carton Kids. And I really do believe that we made a way, way better record. We wrote way better songs. The songs that we re-recorded with a different approach. I'm just way more proud of what we did and happy with what we did. And it took, it was a real pandemic lesson of like, A deadline is artificial, and take your time to get it right. Now, sometimes you can also overdo it and wring everything out of it, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to maybe know which one you're doing. Are you obsessing, or are you actually editing and making progress? But I think it could go both ways. Well, the balance,
2: I think, is important, pointing
3: out. Yeah, for sure. There's a specific one. It's
2: first the reminder, like, we're in a world where, like, the thing we do is three minutes long. Or maybe five minutes long. Sometimes seven if you're being greedy, whatever. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: But, like, that's the deal. And it shouldn't take that long to make something that long. And if you lived in a world that literally was another era 50 years ago and Patsy Cline goes and cuts crazy, like... That's going to happen in three hours or less. That's how it happened. And obviously before that, which is like a marvel of modern history that I'm sure has been shot into space for generations in perpetuity to glean its magic. There obviously was like a lifetime of a person that led up to that moment. There was probably, I don't know the story on it. Maybe there were months of pre production. Maybe it was, maybe it came together in an afternoon Mm co-write. Who knows? The point is to actually make the thing. Shouldn't take that long. It's three minutes tops. And from our record, from the one that I'm most proud about is the title track on the record is a song that I wrote seven years ago. And we've recorded four different times for albums. And my point is, like, I've always been very precious about that song. At no point did I ever spend too much time wringing the life out of it. It's like, for the first two years, it had completely different lyrics. Every time it was performed, I was like, that's not what I want. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, I'd re- revisit and try to do it, and I'd fail, and then I'd put it aside for a while, and I'd come back, oh, there's really something to that. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I changed the lyrics and liked that, and we tried at various points to record it. Our last record, we got as far as like having recorded it. It was in sequence, and at the end, just something felt wrong, and I had to write an email to everybody saying, We're pulling that track off the album. And everybody goes, oh, that's a great track. And I'm like, yeah, it's not right. And then we did it for this one. But sure enough, you know, like the thing that you hear, it took two hours to record. But yeah. Because it's three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And this one even has, this one has 25 strings on it. And it was like a whole production and a whole deal and whatever. But it took two hours to record. That's because we had to get the 25 people to like play it all together in the end, it took three minutes to record because it was one take.
1: So my question, though, is did it take two hours or did it really take like eight hours because it was the fourth time you recorded it before it finally worked?
2: No. Well, the answer is it took seven years. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> plus all the other shit that came before it for me to even arrive right. at that point to mm-hmm. write it. But some people could argue that I didn't even write that song, that it was like beamed down from the stars, mm-hmm. through me and whatever, you know. I'm well, going to take is... credit for it because I want to get paid for it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take the other half. This is why the... Conversation for B is a little bit difficult, because this is where it's actually just... There's not like a hard and fast rule, it's just about taste and vision. Kenneth had a vision for what that song could be, and it wasn't about how many hours or years he was going to work on it, like when it was done, it was done. The last song on our album happened in a day, like written, recorded, done the same day. I was just writing songs yesterday with Katie Pruitt. And she's a person who Kenneth and I have sat with her and like worked on songs before. And I was with her yesterday. And she's a person who I think has impeccable taste and is a really good editor. She's a person I would never tell don't overthink it. Mm -hmm. Because every time I've ever heard her make a change to one of her things, it was an improvement. I think it's about taste. Like if you keep working on something, hopefully it's because you have a sense that it's not done or not there or not right. Right. And then how are you going to tell somebody, no, you're overthinking it versus, no, that's just really isn't what your vision was. But if it's into hour three and you're still moving the knobs and it's not (laughs) like getting to be what you want. You guys are talking about
1: engineering. Get off the mic. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Yeah.
3: Well, I believe in that too, taking a break and coming
1: back to it. Yeah, Yeah. One thing that I'm hearing that's kind of been a theme throughout our whole conversation here is just like, is knowing yourself knowing what mm-hmm. you want whether it's with your touring career with your team with the song Actual that you've music. written knowing what is good enough you know and i and mean that like in the best sense what is good for What's you it's also just ballads,
3: dude i love tying shit up in a bow and Aaron, that was so satisfying <laughs> i'll
2: just what my drag ther- it on what my
3: therapist <laughs> does i talk for an hour and she goes you know what i hear the theme of what you're saying is this and i'm like that's what the $200 is for. Yeah. And
0: she's like, and I yeah, like at touring. Time. Joey
2: talks yeah, to her exactly. once every three months.
0: <laughs> so good,
2: what? that does. So listen, are you ever in life having too much fun? And when you're having fun, a little voice in your head goes, God, I should really leave before I have too much fun? Yes. Yeah. Always listen to that voice. <laughs> Get the hell out of there
0: like, yes, constantly. Yeah.
2: Gotta go. Does that ever happen when you're on the internet? Because oh. you should
3: leave yes. off the internet. Yeah. Most people yeah. just swipe past that voice. Gotta
1: go.
3: Yeah. I'm going to go back to what Aaron said. I Like the whole f- solution to everything is if you can know yourself enough to know what you really want. And then like Kenneth said, once you know what you really want, it's easy to figure out what you're willing to sacrifice to get it. Yeah, It won't be too much, it won't be too little You'll have balance
0: Beautiful well, But
3: also no disrespect <laughs> to
2: people who don't know what they want
0: yeah. It takes time to find or, this. Or 17 want...
2: year olds or
3: arrested 23 year olds Or 30 36
0: years. year olds Who just want a lot of things So don't always yeah. know what to focus people on People who are
3: still young, like 36 <laughs> Got your whole life ahead of you
0: <laughs> Not middle aged By
3: 40 if you don't know what you want Then yeah, now you're fucked
1: Yeah well, Thank you guys for spending your morning or early afternoon with us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Love to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Other 22 Hours podcast. You can find more info on this episode, including links to things that we talked about, by going to theother22hours.com and clicking on episodes.
0: We want this show to be a resource for our community from our community. So we'd love to hear from you about what works and what doesn't please let us know by sending an email to info at 22 hourscom And we'll see you back here next week for another episode.